This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear Labyrinth by Roberto Bolaño, translated from the Spanish by Chris Andrews, which appeared in The New Yorker in January of 2012. Who was J.J. Gould waiting for? For someone he's in love with? Someone he was hoping to sleep with that night? And how was his delicate sensibility affected by that person's failure to show up? The story was chosen by Sterling Holy White Mountain, a Jones lecturer at Stanford who grew up on the Blackfeet Reservation in Montana. Hi, Sterling. Hello, Deborah. Welcome. It's great to have you on the podcast. Yeah, this is, uh, I'm excited to be here. This is cool. <laughs> you have chosen to read and talk about a story by the late Chilean writer Roberto Bolaño. What made you think of him for this? Well, I, you know, I originally thought maybe I would uh, do an Updike story, and then I saw the list of Updike stories, and I thought um, <laughs> we should get the podcast done before 2027. Um, I, lo- I love Bolaño, and uh, I stumbled across this story maybe two years ago, and um, I fell in love with it. And uh, I think it's a, just a really interesting story in so many different ways. And how did you first read Bolaño? How did you come across him? I was in the workshop in Iowa, uh, I believe, when 2666 came out. I didn't read it then, though. Basically, what happened to me is what happens to a lot of people when they get out of MFA programs, which is that you get out of there and you've completely forgotten why it is that you ever read or wrote (laughs) anything in the first place. And that was exactly where I was. And I was in a very sort of, I was pretty lost. And I was working a lot, like anywhere from 12 to 16 hour days out in the Seattle Tacoma area. And I just decided to pick up 2666 and I started reading it. And every spare moment I had, I was reading that book. And it took me a couple months to finish it. But by the time I finished it, it had restored my faith. Mm-hmm. What was it about that novel? I think one of the reasons that people feel so lost or even like despondent when they come out of MFA programs is that they've spent so much time thinking about the mechanics of fiction that they've lost sight of what it is that's beautiful or mysterious Mm -hmm. or uh, compelling about fiction. And people tend to get very lost in like discussions of how fiction should or shouldn't be. And the thing about Bolaño's work is that he's just profoundly um, not concerned with how fiction (laughs) should be. And it gives his sentences and his narratives uh, a kind of energy and like movement and motion that is just really extraordinary and also very rare. Yeah. Labyrinth, this story that you're reading today, is inspired by a photograph, a, a real photograph, which we published with the story. And that's a portrait of a group of French writers and intellectuals, most of whom were at least tangentially involved with the literary theory magazine Telquel in the 70s in Paris. But although Bolaño describes this photograph quite accurately and he uses the real names of the people in it where he knows them, the stories he tells about them are invented. What do you think about that setup for a story, this strange blurring of imagination and an actual real object? I've become very interested in the intersection between 
I guess you might say, the imaginative world of fiction and the reality of the writer's lived experience or the real world that the writer lives in. And this story starts out like this might be an exercise that you would give like an intro class. Here's a photograph, right about this photograph, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But like, you know, he, he just completely blows the doors off of that entire idea that you would write responding to something um, in a way that I've never quite seen before. And the entire time, I, I didn't know until I actually talked to you for a few minutes yesterday, I didn't, I've never look to see how much of this story is actually real. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I didn't look up to see if the photograph, if those names are real people. Like, I just didn't. It wasn't interesting to me. Mm-hmm. But was what was interesting to me was thinking about, did he actually know any of these people? If he did, what does that mean? Like, I guess the question that I'm, I'm interested in, I'm trying to get at right here, is like, how is it that the real world becomes fiction? And it's an unanswerable question, but but I'm always wondering when I read this story, like, where did he allow his imagination to just completely run? And where is he trying to, like, actually stay with something that he may have known about the people in the photo? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll talk some more after the story. And now here's Sterling Holy White Mountain reading Labyrinth by Roberto Bolaño, translated from the Spanish by Chris Andrews. Labyrinth. They're seated. They're looking at the camera. They're captioned from left to right. J. Henrique, J. J. Go, P. H. Soler, J. Cristeva, M. T. H. Reveille, P. Guillota, C. Devad, and M. Devad. There's no photo credit. They're sitting around a table. It's an ordinary table made of wood, perhaps, or plastic. It could even be a marble table on metal legs. But nothing could be less germane to my purpose than to give an exhaustive description of it. The table is a table that is large enough to seat the above-mentioned individuals, and it's in a cafe, or appears to be. Let's suppose for the moment that it's in a cafe. The eight people who appear in the photo who are posing for the photo are fanned out around one side of the table in a crescent or a kind of opened-out horseshoe, so that each of them can be seen clearly and completely. In other words, no one is facing away from the camera. In front of them, or rather between them, and the photographer, and this is slightly strange, there are three plants a rhododendron, a ficus, and an everlasting, rising from a planter, which may serve, but this is speculation, as a barrier between two distinct sections of the cafe. The photo was probably taken in 1977 or thereabouts. But let us return to the figures. On the left-hand side we have, as I said, J. Henrique, that is, the writer Jacques Henrique, born in 1938, and the author of Archer, Arthur Travaillé par la Chine, and Chasse. Enrique is a solidly built man, broad-shouldered, muscular-looking, probably not very tall. He is wearing a plaid shirt with the sleeves rolled halfway up his forearms. He's not what you would call a handsome man. He has the square face of a farmer or a construction worker, thick eyebrows, and a dark chin, one of those chins which need to be shaved twice a day, or so some people claim. His legs are crossed, and his hands are clasped over his knee. Next to him is J.J. Gu. About J.J. Gu I know nothing. He is probably called Jean-Jacques, but in this story, for the sake of convenience, I'll continue to use his initials. J.J. Gu is young and blonde. He's wearing glasses. There's nothing especially attractive about his features, although, compared with Enrique, he looks not only more handsome but also more intelligent. The line of his jaw is symmetrical, and his lips are full, the lower lips slightly thicker than the upper. He's wearing a turtleneck sweater and a dark leather jacket. 
Beside J.J. is P.H. Soler, Philippe Soler, born in 1936, the editor of Tel Kel, author of Drame, Nombre, and Paradis, a public figure familiar to everyone. Soler has his arms crossed, the left arm resting on the surface of the table, the right arm resting on the left, and his right hand indolently cupping the elbow of his left arm. His face is round. It would be an exaggeration to say that it's the face of a fat man, but it probably will be in a few years' time. It's the face of a man who enjoys a good meal. An ironic, intelligent smile is hovering about his lips. His eyes, which are much livelier than those of Enrique or J.J., and smaller, too, remain fixed on the camera, and the bags underneath them help to give his round face a look that is at once preoccupied, perky, and playful. Like J.J., he's wearing a turtleneck sweater, though the sweater that Soler is wearing is white, dazzlingly white, while J.J.'s is probably yellow or light green. Over the sweater, Soler is wearing a garment that appears at first to be a dark-colored leather jacket, though it could be made of a lighter material, possibly suede. He's the only one who's smoking. Beside Soler is J. Kristeva, Julia Kristeva, the Bulgarian semiologist, his wife. She is the author of La Traversée des Signes, Pouvoir de l'Horreur, and Le Langage, C'est Enconnu. She's slim with prominent cheekbones, black hair parted in the middle, and gathered into a bun at the back. Her eyes are dark and lively, as lively as those of Soler, although there are differences. In addition to being larger, they transmit a certain hospitable warmth, that is, a certain serenity, which is absent from her husband's eyes. She's wearing a turtleneck sweater, which is very close-fitting, though the collar is loose, and a long V-shaped necklace that accentuates the form of her torso. At first glance, she could almost be Vietnamese, except that her breasts, it seems, are larger than those of the average Vietnamese woman. Hers is the only smile that allows us a glimpse of teeth. Beside La Cresteva is MTH Réveillé. About her, too, I know nothing. She's probably called Marie-Thérèse. Let's suppose that she is. Marie-Thérèse, then, is the first person so far not to be wearing a turtleneck sweater. Enrique isn't either, actually, but his neck is short. He barely has one at all. While Marie-Thérèse Réveillé, by contrast, has a neck that is long and entirely revealed by the dark garment she is wearing. Her hair is straight and long, with a center part, light brown in color or perhaps honey blonde. Thanks to the slight leftward turn of her face, a pearl can be seen suspended from her ear, like a stray satellite. Next to Marie-Thérèse Réveillé is P. Guillotat, that is, Pierre Guillotat, born in 1940, the author of Tambour pour 500 000 soldats, Eden, 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 and Prostitution. Guillotat is bald. That's his most striking characteristic. He's also the handsomest man in the group. His bald head is radiant, his skull capacious, and the black hair at his temples resembles nothing so much as the laurel leaves that used to wreathe the heads of victorious Roman generals. Neither shrinking away nor striking a pose, he has the expression of a man who travels by night. He's wearing a leather jacket, a shirt, and a t-shirt. The t-shirt, but here there must be some mistake, is white with black horizontal stripes and a thicker black stripe around the neck, like something a child might wear, or a Soviet parachutist. His eyebrows are narrow and definite. They mark the border between his immense forehead and a face that is wavering between concentration and indifference. The eyes are inquisitive, but perhaps they give a false impression. His lips are pressed together in a way that may not be deliberate. Next to Guillotat is C. Devad. Caroline, Carol, Carla, Colette, Claudine, we'll never know. Let's say for the sake of convenience that she's called Carla Devad. 
She could well be the youngest member of the group. Her hair is short, without bangs, and although the photo is in black and white, it's reasonable to suppose that her skin has an olive tone, suggesting a Mediterranean background. Maybe Carla Devada is from the south of France, or Catalonia, or Italy. Only a Julia Cristeva is as dark. But Cristeva's skin, perhaps it's a trick of the light, has a metallic bronze-like quality, while Carla Devada's is silky and yielding. She is wearing a dark sweater with a round neck and a blouse. Her lips and her eyes betray more than a hint of a smile, a sign of recognition, perhaps. Next to Carla Devad is M. Devad. This is presumably the writer Mark Devad, who is still a member of Telkel's editorial committee. His relationship with Carla Devad is obvious, man and wife. Could they be brother and sister? Possibly, but the physical dissimilarities are numerous. Mark Devad. I find it hard to call him Mark. I would have preferred to translate M into Marcel or Max, is blonde, chubby-cheeked, and has very light eyes. So it makes more sense to presume that they are man and wife. Just to be different, Devad is wearing a turtleneck sweater like J.J. Gu, Soler and Kristeva, and a dark jacket. His eyes are large and beautiful, and his mouth is decisive. His hair, as I said, is blonde. It's long, longer than that of the other men, and elegantly combed back. His forehead is broad and perhaps slightly bulging, and he has, although this may be an illusion produced by the graininess of the image, a dimple in his chin. How many of them are looking directly at the photographer? Only a few. J.J. Gu, Soler, and Marc Devad. Marie-Thérèse Réveillé and Carla Devad are looking away to the left, past Henrique. Guillotard's gaze is angled slightly to the right, fixed on a point a yard or two from the photographer, and Kristeva, whose gaze is the strangest of all, appears to be looking straight at the camera, but in fact she's looking at the photographer's stomach, or, to be more precise, into the empty space beside his hip. The photo was taken in winter or autumn, or maybe at the beginning of spring, but certainly not in summer. Who are the most warmly dressed? J.J. Gu, Soler, and Marc Devad, without question. They're wearing jackets over their turtleneck sweaters, and thick jackets, too, from the look of them, especially J.J.'s and Devad's. Kristeva is a case apart, her turtleneck sweater is light, more elegant than practical, and she's not wearing anything over it. Then we have Giotta. He might be as warmly dressed as the four I've already mentioned. He doesn't seem to be, but he's the only one wearing three layers. The black leather jacket, the shirt, and the striped t-shirt. You could imagine him wearing those clothes even if the photo had been taken in summer. It's quite possible. All we can say for sure is that Giotta is dressed as if he were on his way somewhere else. As for Carla Devad, she's in between. Her blouse, whose collar is showing over the top of her sweater, looks soft and warm. The sweater itself is casual, but of good quality, neither very heavy nor very light. Finally, we have Jacques-Henrique and Marie-Thérèse Réveillé. Henrique is clearly not a man who feels the cold, although his Canadian lumberjack's shirt looks warm enough. And the least warmly dressed of all is Marie-Thérèse Réveillé. Under her light knitted v-neck sweater, there are only her breasts, cut by a black or white bra. All of them, more or less warmly dressed, captured by the camera at that moment in 1977 or thereabouts, are friends, and some of them are lovers, too. For a start, Soler and Kristeva, obviously, and the two Devads, Mark and Carla. Those, we might say, are the stable couples. And yet there are certain features of the photo, something about the arrangement of the objects, the petrified musical rhododendron, two of its leaves invading the space of the ficus-like clouds within a cloud the grass growing in the planter, which looks more like fire than grass, the everlasting leaning whimsically to the left, the glasses in the center of the table, 
well away from the edges, except for Cristeva's, as if the other members of the group were worried they might fall, that suggest a more complex and subtle web of relations among these men and women. Let's imagine J.J. Gu, for example, who is looking out at us through his thick submarine spectacles. His face in the photo is momentarily vacant, and we see him walking along Rue de l'École de Médecine, with books under his arm, of course, two books, till he comes out onto Boulevard Saint-Germain. There he turns his steps toward the Mabillon Metro station, but first he stops in front of a bar, checks the time, goes in, and orders a cognac. After a while, J.J. moves away from the bar and sits down at the table near the window. What does he do? He opens a book. We can't tell what book it is, but we do know that he's finding it difficult to concentrate. Every 20 seconds or so, he lifts his head and looks out onto Boulevard Saint-Germain, his gaze a little more gloomy each time. It's raining, and people are walking hurriedly under the umbrellas. J.J.'s blonde hair isn't wet, from which we can deduce that it began to rain after he entered the bar. It's getting dark. J.J. remains seated, and now there are two cognacs and two coffees on his tab. Coming closer, we can see that the dark rings under his eyes have the look of a war zone. At no point has he taken off his glasses. He's a pitiful sight. After a very long wait, he goes back out onto the street where he is gripped by a shiver, perhaps because of the cold. For a moment, he stands still on the sidewalk and looks both ways. Then he starts walking in the direction of the Mabillon Metro station. When he reaches the entrance, he runs his hand through his hair several times, as if he'd suddenly realized that his hair was a mess, although it's not. Then he goes down the steps, and the story ends or freezes in an empty space where appearances gradually fade away. Who was J.J. Gu waiting for? For someone he's in love with? Someone he was hoping to sleep with that night? And how was his delicate sensibility affected by that person's failure to show up? Let's suppose that the person who didn't come was Jacques-Henrique. While J.J. was waiting for him, Henrique was riding a 250cc Honda motorcycle to the entrance of the apartment building where the Devads live. But no, that's impossible. Let's imagine that Henrique simply climbed onto his Honda and rode off into a vaguely literary, vaguely unstable Paris, and that his absence on this occasion is strategic, as Amoris absences nearly always are. So let's set up the couples again. Carla Devad and Marc Devad, Solaire and Cristeva, J.J. Gou and Jacques-Henrique, Marie-Thérèse Réveillé and Pierre Guillotin. And let's set up the night. J.J. Gou is sitting and reading a book whose title is Immaterial, in a bar on Boulevard Saint-Germain. His turtleneck sweater won't let his skin breathe, but he doesn't yet feel entirely ill at ease. Henrique is stretched out on his bed, half undressed, smoking and looking at the ceiling. Solaire is shut up in his study, writing, pinkly snug and warm inside his turtleneck sweater. Julia Kristeva is at the university. Marie-Thérèse Réveillé is walking along the Avenue de Friedland, near the intersection with Rue Balzac, the headlights of the cars shining in her face. Guilta is in the bar on Rue La Cépède, near the Jardin de Plantes, drinking with some friends. Carla Devad is in her apartment, sitting on a chair in the kitchen, doing nothing. Mark Devad is at the Telkel office, speaking politely on the phone to one of the poets he most admires and hates. Soon Soler and Kristeva will be together, reading after dinner. They will not make love tonight. Soon Marie-Thérèse Réveillé and Guilta will be together in bed, and he will sodomize her. They will fall asleep at five in the morning after exchanging a few words in the bathroom. Soon Carla Devad and Mark Devad will be together, 
and she will shout, and he will shout, and she will go to the bedroom and pick up a novel, any one of the many that are lying on her bedside table, and he will sit at his desk and try to write but fail. Carla will fall asleep at one in the morning, Mark at half past two, and they will try not to touch each other. Soon Jacques-Henrique will go down to the underground parking garage and climb onto his Honda and venture out into the cold streets of Paris, becoming cold himself, a man who shapes his own destiny and knows or at least believes that he is lucky. He will be the only member of the group to see the day dawning and the disastrous retreat of the night wanderers, each an enigmatic letter in an imaginary alphabet. Soon J.J. Gu, who was the first to fall asleep, will have a dream in which a photo will appear and he'll hear a voice warning him of the devil's presence and of hapless death. He'll wake with a start from this dream or auditory nightmare and won't be able to get back to sleep for the rest of the night. Day breaks and the photo is illuminated once again. Marie-Thérèse Réveillé and Carla Devard look off to the left at an object beyond Henrique's muscular shoulders. There is recognition or acceptance in Carla's gaze. That much is clear from her half-smile and gentle eyes. Marie-Thérèse, however, has a penetrating gaze. Her lips are slightly open, as if she were having difficulty breathing, and her eyes are trying to fix on, trying unsuccessfully to nail, the object of her attention, which is presumably moving. The women are looking in the same direction, but it's clear that they have quite different emotional reactions to whatever it is they are seeing. Carla's gentleness may be conditioned by ignorance. Marie-Thérèse's insecurity, her defensive yet inquisitorial glare, may result from the sudden stripping away of various layers of experience. Any moment now, J.J. Gu might start to cry. The voice that warned him of the devil's presence is still ringing, though faintly, in his ears. He is not, however, looking to the left, at the object that has attracted the women's attention, but directly at the camera, and an infinitesimal smile is creeping over his lips, a would-be ironic smile confined, for the moment, to the safer domain of placidity. When night falls over the photograph again, J.J. Gu will head straight for his apartment, make himself a sandwich, watch television for exactly 15 minutes, not one more, then sit in an armchair in the living room and call Philippe Soler. The phone will ring five times, and J.J. will hang up slowly, holding the receiver in his right hand, raising his left hand to his lips, and touching them with two fingers, as if to check that he's still there, that the person there is him, in a living room that's not too big, not too small, crowded with books, and dark. As for Carla Devad having lost her acquiescent smile, she'll call Marie-Thérèse Réveillé, who will pick up the phone after three rings. In a roundabout way, they'll talk about things they don't really want to talk about at all, and arrange to meet in three days' time at a café en Rue Galin. Tonight, Marie-Thérèse will go out on her own, to nowhere in particular, and Carla will shut herself in her room as soon as she hears the sound of Marc Devad's key sliding into the lock. But nothing tragic will happen for now. Marc Devad will read an essay by a Bulgarian linguist. Giotta will go to see a film by Jacques Rivette. Julia Kristeva will stay up late reading. Philippe Soler will stay up late writing. And he and his wife will barely exchange a word shut away in their respective studies. Jacques-Henrique will sit down at his typewriter, but nothing will occur to him. So after 20 minutes, he'll put on his leather jacket and his boots and go down to the underground parking garage and look for his Honda. For some reason, the lights in the garage don't seem to be working, but Henri can remember where he left his bike, so he walks in the dark, in the belly of that whale-like garage, without fear or apprehension of any kind, until about halfway there he hears an unusual noise, 
not a knocking in the pipes or the sound of a car door opening or closing, and he stops without really understanding why and listens, but the noise is not repeated and now the silence is absolute. And then the night ends, or a small part of the night, at least a manageable part, and light wraps the photo like a bandage on fire, and there he is again, Pierre Guillotin, almost a familiar presence now, with his powerful shiny bald head and his leather jacket, the jacket of an anarchist or a commissar from the Spanish Civil War, and his sidelong gaze veering off to the right, as if into the space behind the photographer, as if directed at someone near or at the bar, perhaps, standing or sitting on a stool, someone whose back is turned to Guillotin, and whose face is invisible to him unless, and this is not unlikely, there is a mirror behind the bar. It may be a woman, a young woman, perhaps. Guillotin looks at her reflection in the mirror and looks at the back of her neck. His gaze, however, is far less intense than the gaze of this woman, which is plumbing an abyss. Here we can reasonably conclude that, while Guillotin is looking at a stranger, Marie-Thérèse and Carla are looking at a man they know, although, as is usually, or in fact inevitably the case, their perceptions of him are entirely different. Let's call these two beyond the frame X and Z. X is the woman at the bar. Z is the man who is known to Marie-Thérèse and Carla. They don't know him very well, of course. From Carla's gaze, which is not only gentle but protective, it could be inferred that he is young, although from Marie-Thérèse's gaze, it could also be inferred that he is a potentially dangerous individual. Who else knows Z? No one. Or at least there is nothing to suggest that his presence is of any concern to the others. Maybe he's a young writer who at some stage tried to get his work published in Telkel. Maybe he's a young journalist from South America, no, from Central America, who at some point tried to write an article about the group. He may well be an ambitious young man. If he's a Central American in Paris, in addition to being ambitious, he may also be bitter. Of the people sitting around the table, he knows only Marie-Thérèse, Carla, Soler, and Marc Devad. Let's say he once visited the Telcal office and was introduced to those four. He also once shook hands with Marcelin Plenet, but Plenet is not in the photo. He has never seen the others in his life, or only, in the cases of Guillotin and Jacques-Henrique, in author photos. We can imagine the young Central American, hungry and bitter, in the Telcal office, and we can imagine Philippe Soler and Marc Devad wavering between puzzlement and indifference as they listen to him. And we can even imagine that Carla Devad is there by pure chance. She has come to meet her husband. She has brought some papers that Mark forgot on his desk. She's there because she couldn't stand being alone in the apartment a minute longer, etc. What we can imagine or justify in any way at all is Marie-Thérèse's presence in the office. She is Guillotin's partner. She doesn't work for Telkel, and she has no reason to be there. And yet there she is, and that is where she meets the young Central American. Is she there on that day because of Carla Devad? Has Carla arranged to meet Marie-Thérèse at the office because she knows that Mark will not be coming home with her? Or has Marie-Thérèse come to meet someone else? Let's return discreetly to the afternoon when the Central American came to the office on Rue Jacob to pay his respects. It's the end of the workday. The secretary has already gone home, and when the bell rings, it's Mark Devad who opens the door and lets the visitor in without meeting his eye. The Central American crosses the threshold and follows Mark Devad to an office at the end of the corridor. He leaves a trail of drops on the wooden floor behind him, although it stopped raining quite some time ago. Devad is, of course, oblivious of this detail. He walks ahead, talking about something or other, the weather, money, chores, with that elegance that only certain Frenchmen seem to possess. 
In the office, which is spacious and contains a desk, several chairs, two armchairs, and shelves full of books and magazines, Soler is waiting. And as soon as the introductions are over, the Central American hails him as a genius, one of the century's most brilliant minds, a compliment that would be par for the course in certain tropical nations on the far side of the Atlantic, but which, in the Telquel office and the ears of Philippe Soler, verges on the preposterous. In fact, as soon as the Central American makes his declaration, Soler catches Devad's eye, and both of them wonder whether they've let a madman in. Deep down, however, Soler is 80% in agreement with the Central American's appraisal. So once he has set aside the idea that the visitor might be mocking them, the conversation proceeds in an amicable fashion, at least for a while. The Central American speaks of Julia Kristeva. He winks at Soler as he mentions that eminent Bulgarian. He speaks of Marcelin Plenet, whom he has already met, and of Denis Roche, whose work he claims to be translating. Devad listens to him with a slightly wry smile. Soler listens, nodding from time to time, his boredom increasing with every passing second. Suddenly, a sound of footsteps in the corridor. The door opens. Carla Devad appears, wearing tight corduroy trousers, flat shoes, and a disconsolate smile on her pretty Mediterranean face. Mark Devad gets up from his chair. For a moment, the couple whisper questions and answers. The Central American has fallen silent. Soler is mechanically flipping through a British magazine. Then Carla and Mark walk across the room. Carla taking tentative little steps, holding her husband's arm, and the Central American stands up, is introduced, obsequiously greets the newcomer. The conversation immediately resumes, but the Central American's chatter veers off in a new direction. Unfortunately for him, he changes the subject from literature to the matchless beauty and grace of French women, at which point Soler completely loses interest. Shortly afterward, the visit is brought to a close. Soler looks at his watch, says it's late. Devad shows the Central American to the door, shakes his hand, and the visitor, instead of waiting for the elevator, rushes down the stairs. On the second floor landing, he runs into Marie-Thérèse Réveillée. The Central American is talking to himself in Spanish, not under his breath, but out loud. As their paths cross, Marie-Thérèse notices a fierce look in his eyes. They bump into each other, both apologize. They look at each other again, and this is surprising, the way their eyes meet again after the apology and what she sees beneath the expedient mask of bitterness is a well of unbearable horror and fear. So the Central American, Z, is there in the café when the photo is taken, and Carla and Marie-Thérèse have recognized him. They've remembered him. Perhaps he has just arrived. Perhaps he walked past the table at which the group is sitting and greeted them, but, except for the two women, they had no idea who he was. This happens quite often, of course, but it's something that the Central American still can't accept with equanimity. There he is to the left of the group with some Central American friends, or waiting for them, maybe, and deep within him there's a seething anger nourished by affronts and grudges, fueled by bitterness and the chill of the City of Light. His appearance, however, is equivocal. It makes Carla Devad feel like a protective older sister or a missionary nun in Africa but it catches up Marie-Thérèse Réveillée like a barbed wire and triggers a vague erotic longing. And then night falls again, and the photo empties out or disappears under a scribble of lines traced by the mechanism of night, and Soler is writing in his study, and Kristeva is writing in her study next door, soundproof studies, so that they can't hear each other typing, for example, or getting up to consult a book, or coughing or talking to themselves, and Carla and Mark Devot are leaving a cinema, They've been to see a film by Rivette, not talking to each other, although a couple of times Mark and then Carla, who's more distracted, greets people they know, 
and J.J. Gu is preparing his dinner, a frugal dinner consisting of bread, pâté, cheese, and a glass of wine, and Guillota is undressing Marie-Thérèse Réveillé and throwing her onto the sofa with a violent thrust that Marie-Thérèse intercepts in midair as if she were catching a butterfly of lucidity in a lucidity net, and Enrique is leaving his apartment, going down to the parking garage, and he stops again as the lights go out, first the ones near the metal roller door that opens onto the street, and then the others, till there is only the light down at the far end, illuminating his multicolored Honda, flickering helplessly, and then it fails as well. And it occurs to Enrique that his motorcycle is like an Assyrian god, but for the moment his legs refuse to walk on into the darkness. And Marie-Thérèse shuts her eyes and opens her legs, one foot on the sofa, the other on the carpet, while Guillota pushes into her, the panties still around her thighs, and calls her his little whore, his little bitch, and asks her what she did during the day, what happened to her, what streets she wandered down. And J.J. Gu is sitting at the table and spreading pâté on a piece of bread and lifting it to his mouth and chewing, first on the right side, then on the left, unhurriedly, with a book by Robert Panger open beside him to page two, and the television switched off, but the screen reflecting his image, a man on his own with his mouth closed and his cheeks full, looking thoughtful and absent, and Carla Devaud and Mark Devaud are making love, Carla on top, illuminated only by the light in the corridor, a light they usually leave on, and Carla is groaning and trying not to look at her husband's face, his blonde hair a mess now, his light eyes, his broad and placid face, his delicate, elegant hands, devoid of the fire she's longing for, ineffectually holding her hips, as if he were trying to keep her there with him, but he has no real sense of what she might be fleeing from, or what her flight might mean, a flight that goes on and on like torture, and Christeva and Soler are going to bed, first her, she has to lecture early the next day, then him, and both of them take books that they will leave on their bedside tables when sleep comes to close their eyes, and Philippe Soler will dream that he is walking along a beach in Brittany with a scientist who has discovered a way to destroy the world. They will be walking westward along this long, deserted beach, bounded by rocks and black cliffs, and suddenly Soler will realize that the scientist, who is talking and explaining, is himself, and that the man walking beside him is a murderer. This will dawn on him when he looks down at the wet sand with its soup-like consistency and the crabs skittering away to hide and the prince the two of them are leaving on the beach. There is a certain logic to this, identifying the murderer by his footprints. And Julia Kristeva will dream of a little village in Germany where years ago she participated in a seminar and she'll see the streets of the village clean and empty and sit down in a square it's tiny but full of plants and trees, and close her eyes and listen to the distant cheeping of a single bird, and wonder if the bird is in a cage or free, and she'll feel a breeze on her neck, and her face, neither cold nor warm, a perfect breeze, perfumed with lavender and orange blossom, and then she'll remember her seminar and look at her watch, but it will have stopped. So the Central American is outside the frame of the photograph sharing that pristine and deceptive territory with the object of Guillotin's gaze, an unknown woman armed only for the moment with her beauty. Their eyes will not meet. They will pass each other by like shadows, briefly sharing the same hazardous ambit, the itinerant theater of Paris. The Central American could quite easily become a murderer. Perhaps back in his country he will, but not here, where the only blood he could possibly shed is his own. This pull pot won't kill anyone in Paris. And actually... Back in Tegucigalpa or San Salvador, he'll probably end up teaching in a university. 
As for the unknown woman, she will not be captured by Giotta's asbestos nets. She's at the bar, waiting for the boyfriend she'll marry before long, him or the next one, and their marriage will be disastrous, though not without its moments of comfort. Literature brushes past these literary creatures and kisses them on the lips, but they don't even notice. The section of restaurant or cafe that contains the photo's nest of smoke continues imperturbably on its voyage through nothingness. Behind Solaire, for instance, we can make out the fragmentary figures of three men. None of their faces can be seen in their entirety. The man on the left, in profile, a forehead, one eyebrow, the back part of his ear, the top of his head. The man on the right, a little piece of his forehead, his cheekbone, strands of dark hair. The man in the middle, who seems to be calling the shots, most of his forehead, traversed by two clearly visible wrinkles, his eyebrows, the bridge of his nose, and a discreet quiff. Behind them there is a pane of glass, and behind the glass many people walking about curiously among stalls or exhibition stands, book stands perhaps, mostly facing away from our characters, who have their backs to them in turn. Except for a child with a round face and straight bangs, wearing a jacket that may be too small for him, looking sideways toward the cafe, as if from that distance he could observe everything going on inside, which, on the face of it, seems rather unlikely. And in a corner to the right, the waiting man, the listening man, his face appears just above Mark Devad's blonde hair. His hair is dark and abundant, his eyebrows are thick, he is thin. In one hand, a hand resting listlessly against his right temple, he is holding a cigarette. A spiral of smoke is rising from the cigarette toward the ceiling, and the camera has captured it almost as if it were the image of a ghost. Telekinesis. An expert could identify the brand of cigarette that he's smoking in half a second just by the solid look of that smoke. Goulois, no doubt. He's gazing off toward the photo's right-hand side. That is, he's pretending not to notice that the photo is being taken, but in a way he, too, is posing. And there is yet another person. Careful examination reveals something protruding from Guillotin's neck like a cancerous growth, which turns out to be made up of a nose, a withered forehead, the outline of an upper lip, the profile of a man who is looking, with a certain gravity, in the same direction as the smoking man, although their gazes could not be more different. And then the photo is occluded, and all that is left is the smoke of a gouloise floating in the air, as if the viewfinder had suddenly swung to the right, toward the black hole of chance, and Solaire comes to a sudden halt in the street, a street near Place Wagram, and feels in his pockets as if he had left his address book behind or lost it and Marie-Thérèse Ravier is driving on Boulevard Malazerbe, near Place Wagram, and J.J. Gou is talking on the phone with Marc Devad. J.J.'s voice is unsteady. Devad isn't saying a word. And Guillotin and Henrique are walking on Rue Saint-André-des-Arts, heading for Rue Dauphine, and by chance they run into Carla Devad, who says hello and joins them, and Julia Kristeva is coming out of class surrounded by a retinue of students, quite a few of whom are foreign, two Spaniards, a Mexican, an Italian, two Germans, and once more the photo dissolves into nothingness. Aurora Borealis. Terrible dawn. As they open their eyes, they are almost transparent. Mark Devad, alone in bed, snug in gray pajamas, dreaming of the Académie Goncourt. J.J. Gou at his window, watching clouds float through the sky over Paris and comparing them unfavorably with certain clouds in paintings by Pizarro or the clouds in his nightmare. Julia Kristeva is sleeping, and her calm face seems an Assyrian mask until, with a very slight wince of discomfort, she wakes. 
Philippe Soler is in the kitchen, leaning on the edge of the sink, and blood is dripping from his right index finger. Carla Devad is climbing the stairs to her apartment after having spent the night with Guillotin. Marie-Thérèse Ravier is making coffee and reading a book. Jacques-Henrique is walking through a dark parking garage, which echoes to the sound of his boots on the concrete. A world of forms is unfolding before his eyes, a world of distant noises. The possibility of fear is approaching, the way wind approaches a provincial capital. Henrique stops, his heart speeds up, he tries to orient himself. Before, he could at least glimpse the shadows and silhouettes at the far end of the garage. Now it seems hermetically black, like the darkness in an empty coffin at the bottom of a crypt. So he decides to keep still. In that stillness, his heartbeat gradually slows and memory brings back images of the day. He remembers Giotta, whom he secretly admires, openly pursuing little Carla. Once again, he sees them smiling, and then he sees them walking away down a street where yellow lights scatter and regroup sporadically, without any obvious pattern, although Enrique knows deep down that everything is determined in some way, everything is causally linked to something else, and human nature leaves very little room for the truly gratuitous. He touches his crotch. He is startled by this movement, the first he has made for some time. He has an erection, and yet he doesn't feel sexually aroused in any way. That was Sterling Holy White Mountain, reading Labyrinth by Roberto Bolaño, translated from the Spanish by Chris Andrews. The story appeared in The New Yorker in January of 2012 and was included in The Secret of Evil, a posthumous collection that came out in Spanish in 2007 and then in English with New Directions in 2012. So, Sterling, this story was found on Roberto Bolaño's computer after he died, and we know very little. It seems he was likely writing it while he was living in Spain in the late 90s. We don't even know where he saw this photograph, which is a real photograph, as we've said. What do you think it was about the photograph that caught his attention? The first few times I read the story, I really thought it was just that there was just something about the image that had caught him. The last few times I've read it, the character of Z <laughs> like stood out so much more to me. Now when I look at the story there, I have this very large question of, is Z a stand-in for Bolaño? There's a kind of simmering resentment uh, and I think sexual jealousy actually that is like in the background of the story, like from the very beginning. And that doesn't really come to any kind of fruition until... Z comes onto the page, and he's such a um, he's such a disaster of a character, <laughs> and uh, you know it's it's so funny it's so funny. Bologna is so good at at making fun of writers, you know, maybe better than anybody ever. And there's something about that that when I look at it now, written as long as I have and read as much fiction as I have and talked to as many writers as I have, you know, like there's something very personal feeling about this story to me now. Like I have a sense that there was something deeply personal about that photograph and those people to him, whatever it might've been. Um, the writers that show up in his work are, uh, they're always jealous. There's always this jealousy. There's always this resentment. You know, I'm rereading 2666 right now. And that same thing that there's all of this jealousy and resentment and like, bitterness and competitiveness between the critics in the beginning of that book. And, and I feel the same thing show up here, particularly when Z shows up. And so in that regard, I think it's very personal to Bolaño. Like 
he clearly had very strong feelings about writers. <laughs> yeah, and, and possibly about these particular ones. Um, yeah. So we're not going to know, you know, whether or not he is Z, whether or not Bolaño went and knocked on the doors of Tel Kellen was treated with a lack of interest or, or with yeah. condescension. But yeah, as you say, I don't think either side of that comes off very well. You know, neither neither the the people in the photograph nor nor Z himself. You know, it's a complicated story to read because these are real people, and he does, as we've said, use some of the real details that he knows about them, such as the fact that Solaris and Kristeva were married, and so on. But he makes up what he doesn't know, and what he makes up has a particular slant to it. Um, why do you think he goes in the directions that he does go in? You know, when I was just reading it, the thing that caught me, other than the fact that there are a couple sentences in there that are really long, <laughs> like I did, like it's one thing to read it on the page, and then but then to read it out loud, I'm like, now I know why people uh, resent writers who write long sentences. <laughs> but um, when he really gets going, like that is the moment I think where the sentences start to get really long, and he's kind of he's kind of riffing and, you know, and moving from one character to another to another. And those are the moments where I feel he's really not in the space of, you know, the real world, but in the space of his fiction. I think of this story as like a very erotic story, actually, and not in the sense of like Eros equals sex, but like in the sense of like, he's so attracted to everything in this story. He's attracted to these people. He's compelled by them. He's repelled by them. He's fascinated by like the relational possibilities between them, you know, their successes, their absence of success. And all of the whole thing feels erotically driven to me in that way. It is one of the reasons that I really love this is I've read a lot of his, not all of his stuff, but I read a lot of his shorter stuff. And I think a lot of it actually comes up short of like the better, longer, you know, the books. But uh, this mm -hmm. is one where I was like, man, everything he does really well in the longer stuff is also in this story. Um, particularly like that wandering recursive structure that he's so good with. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that structure. You know, we have this photograph. He starts by describing it in great detail, describing each person in it, even the plants in it, though not the table. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then, you know, the lights go down and suddenly J.J. Gu is escaping the, the photograph and going off to have a life. And then repeatedly, you know, it becomes daytime, we're back at the photograph, then it becomes nighttime, and we're off the photograph. And we kind of spin out in a lot of different directions from it, and, you know, which in a form that he, I think, refers to at one point as a web. But I'm wondering if, if that is the labyrinth of the story, you know, these many lines walking away from the photograph and intersecting. The story in some way is a record of Bolaño getting lost, wandering down the halls of his own mind, you know, his own interests. And he keeps getting to that point, like you know, like he keeps getting to a point where it just, there's nothing left to say there. And then he returns to the photograph. And he's also like doing this interesting thing where as he returns to the photograph and leaves it, it's also the movement of the day, like we keep going back to night and then night is over and it's in the structure. It's also in the movement just of the days that these people are apparently living, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, 
if I try to imagine myself in his position and like titling that story, like if I were looking at this and it were mine, it would be clear that in some way this is a record of me being lost over and over <laughs> in my, you know, the, the peregrinations of my of my interior. And so it's both like a labyrinth of relationships and complexities there, but it's also the labyrinth of his own his own movement and his own coming up against dead ends and having to go back and start over. Yeah. It's interesting because you've kind of framed it both as he's wandering around the labyrinth trying to solve it, or he's at the center of it and it's leading off from his mind. And of course, at the center of the original labyrinth, there's a monster. Yeah. I just wonder who the minotaur is here. (laughs) Well, I'm actually really glad you said that because I don't I wanted to talk about this, like the thing that really, maybe the thing that he does better than anybody else I've ever read is that he is able to bring in this sense of dread into his fiction like no one else. And and this story is so, you can feel it. It starts very benignly in some ways. And then there's just like a moment where like, you feel a little bit of like this door open onto a darkness and then it just gets darker and darker and darker as the story goes on. And then by the time you're at the end, to me anyway, like the the the, the overwhelming feeling is one of dread. You know, you've got this guy, this strange scene of this guy in, you know, a parking garage where the lights keep going out and he's hearing things. But but we never know. Like there's I think the question of like who is or what is the monster at the center, I think part of the the genius of, of the piece actually is that we never see it. It just kind of, it starts to seep in and at a certain point it is the dominant tone of the piece and then, and then we're done and that's it. Yeah. I was going to say that those moments in the parking garage were actually all of the scenes when we break away from the photograph feel very cinematic to me. Mm. Um, and those moments in the parking garage just feel, you know, ripped from a horror movie. You're in a in closed space and the lights all go out and you stand there with a feeling of dread and then there's a noise. Um, it's almost as though uh, the motorcycle <laughs> is the monster or something, you know, there's there's just mm-hmm. this flashing light over it. I love the moment when he, he it occurs to uh, Jacques Henrique that the motorcycle might be an Assyrian god and the Assyr, the primary Assyrian god, was a bull. So there you have a little bit of a sneaky Minotaur reference. Mm. Um, and I thought of that. And at the same time, you're sort of in The Shining or something. <laughs> um, yeah. So there's so many things going on. Yeah, there's a there's something about this this sense of of dread and maybe even impending doom. You know, seeps into the story, and then by the time you're done, nothing in the story actually is ever able to get at what that thing is, you know, like, where does it come from? Like, why does it feel like it might be outside of the people? It's larger than them, maybe older than them, you know, referencing like the, the Assyrian God. And then the, um, I can't remember which one it is, but her face when she's sleeping looks like an Assyrian mask. And Mm -hmm. there's something about like, even just using the word Assyrian brings in like a totally different kind of energy into the story that it just doesn't have. If you take those two words out, you know, Yeah. yeah. But there's also that moment when, you know, Marie Therese looks at Z and what she sees in him is this well of unbearable horror and fear, which isn't addressed, but there is that well throughout the story, whether it's emanating from Z or from the narrator himself. 
who's never identified. Um, yeah. He has a thing about the insular nature of the writing world and the way that mm -hmm. writers sort of congregate with writers and like in some way or another their vision is turned inward toward each other. And while they're doing this, the world is happening outside of that sort of inward gaze. And the writers here, you know, except for the, you know, that moment with Z and again, you know, he's coming in from maybe Central America, you know, we don't know, but because of where he's from, there's a, there's a different sense of violence, I think, than like, you know, a group of writers in Paris would have. And I think he's thinking about that all the time is how a lot of the writing world is very far away from these large and, and terrible things that are happening in the rest of the world. Yeah. I, I mean, I suppose I've read the story in several different ways. At first, I sort of thought of it as a detective story that he's, you know, here we have a, another detective, one of Bologna's favorite types of characters, who's studying this photograph for almost forensically looking for telling details or clues and that it's all kind of playful. And then, you know, sometimes I read it in a way as a, a revenge story. You know, the imaginary lives he gives these people, these real people, are depressing. <laughs> you know, they're alienated. They're married couples who spend all their time in separate soundproof rooms or they're, you know, couples who are having somewhat brutal sex that it's not clear how much enjoyment there is there there or they're really lonely people being stood up in cafes it's almost as though z who has been rejected by these people is taking pleasure in thinking of them as pitiful yes revenge is a really good an interesting word to use, I think, to think about what is driving this story. Because a lot of fiction feels driven by something else that is not what drives Bolaño's fiction. And I think it's one of the reasons that he, he feels so different to us. But part of it is because of that. Like, he's so open in his in his resentments. And, and, and that turns into, like, in some way or another, like a desire for revenge on the page. And... I haven't read a ton about his biography, his life, but, you know, I know enough to know that he seems to have very much felt like someone who was on the outside when he was younger. And um, you can't sort of hope for people to have difficult lives as outsiders, but that almost always turns into the best kind of life to generate fiction. Mm -hmm. was one of my teachers in grad school said this, that, you know, a lot of people feel that the world is not made for them but most often writers feel that they were not made for the world. That's something that I feel like very strongly in this story. And it's something I feel very strongly in his fiction, the sense that he was an outsider to such a degree that he did not ever quite feel like he belonged here. He never quite settled into being here. And that, that anxiety of not belonging and not finding a place. I mean, he moved around a lot, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's also true in his biography that Bolaño was living in Mexico. He left Mexico in 1977 and went to France and lived in France for a little while before settling in Spain. So, you know, he's giving Z some elements of his own life. 
Mm-hmm. So we don't know how much he's giving him. I mean, that's another thing in the story is just you can read it and think, well, here are the factual elements of the story and here are the non-factual elements of the story, the imagined elements. And often what you would think is factual isn't. This photograph wasn't taken in 1977. It was taken in 1970 when Bologna was not in France. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. He gets wrong some of the details that he appears to actually know about these real people. So there's a manipulation of this illusion of factuality. (laughs) I feel like he's playing with us. Yeah, there's, like I said, I didn't look anything, really look anything up about this photo, but I sensed what you just talked about even the first time I read it. I could just feel it. Like, I don't know what it is. There's something about him. You can feel him like looking at the so-called real world and then just kind of doing what he wants with it. And I think that that was one of the things that really inspired me, being able to see someone who is like, I'm just going to play fast and loose with this. And that's going to give me room to use language the way I want to and and write the kind of sentences I want to and and get at the kinds of things that I want to. And I have a different set of concerns, and my concerns really are about the story, not about the people or their real lives. Like, the ultimate concern is toward creating an aesthetic, you know, object that functions aesthetically rather than uh, rather than as like documentary. Yeah, and at the same time, people can speculate. <laughs> it, it 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 also yeah the story also very much activates our inner gossip and voyeur, right? Like, like wondering, like, how much of this is real? What did he actually know? <laughs> did, did did Jacques Henrique and, and J.J. Gu really have an affair, you know? Neither of them appear to have uh, been interested. Um, <laughs> I mean, they were both married. So it, it's, it's sort of fascinating to follow up on the details. And I like how he, he sort of doesn't want us to fact check him, you know, when he decides to call C. Devad Carla, he says, well, you know, her name is totally unknowable. We'll never know it. Um, And of course, if if this was written in the late 90s, well, maybe you wouldn't have found it online then, but you would have soon after that. And you could have looked it up in some way. So these things aren't unknowable. The truth isn't unknowable necessarily, but he doesn't want you to know it. Yeah. Yeah. This is one of the miracles, I think, of his fiction is that he's constantly telling us that this may not be exactly how it is. This may not be, you know, real in the way you want it to be. And yet, you know, we remain um, completely fascinated and compelled by what he is doing. And I don't really know that I know how to explain that other than to say, like, he's just so good at what he does. Yeah. Well, I feel like at the heart of the story, there's a certain meanness in how he portrays all of these people, quite unforgiving and quite specific. You know that they are lonely, they are alienated. They're the superstars of of French literary theory, but they are unhappy. But there's also just a fascination with the idea of exploring that kind of alienation and loneliness. And you feel that it's familiar to the narrator and that's why he's portraying it. Hmm. You know, you used revenge earlier. Yeah. There is a, there's a kind of vindictiveness behind it. There's 
there is a meanness to it. It's actually one of the reasons I love the story. It's because it's kind of mean, you know, and I, I'm always looking for a fiction that, that is, you know, Flannery O'Connor's, you know, stories were kind of, always kind of mean, right? And like, yeah. there's something about that that I really like. It's, it's much more interesting than being nice to everybody in fiction. That's actually pretty dull. Um, one of the things that does keep me interested in it anyway is that meanness. It's it's clear that he is just going to be unkind in his assessments of these people. But it's also that we're looking at these people in this photo. They're all together, a very, you know, good-looking, well-dressed group of people here. He's looking at them from the outside. This is what the writing world looks like to people who are on the outside. You know, everyone is everyone is together in this place and I'm not there. But as the story goes on, you realize that there is no togetherness actually on the inside. They're totally disconnected from each other and they're literally in soundproof rooms separate from each other, you know, in the same living space. So by the time you reach the end, the jealousy, I think maybe, or the resentment that was driving in the beginning has resolved itself because we've reached a point where it's clear that all of these people are a mess, even though they look you know, very nice together in this photo. Yeah, yeah. They're not happy in their relationships. And I suppose if you're the outsider and you're on the other side of the planter and you're permanently on the other side of the planter, um, <laughs> That's, you know... The other side of the planter should be a, a, a name <laughs> of something, you know. <laughs> then you can you can reassure yourself or find some solace in, in thinking that they're all more unhappy than you are. Um, yeah. That it's not a circle you want to be in. I mean, I wondered also if it was even slightly parodic, you know, because they're all structural theorists, structural literary theorists. And I wonder if he's trying to find the, the signification and whether one is wearing a turtleneck or not or you know, whatever <laughs> else. The, the sort of obsession with these tiny details, if that's meant to be kind of a joke on them, I didn't, I, I'm not sure. I think he does that thing that a lot of really great writers do, which is that he, he always has a certain amount of irony on his characters. And so he's always doing both when I read him. He's always being very sincere about these these people, and he's always, always like making fun of them in one way or another as you go. There's all these small ways, you know, by the time you get to the end, it's very... You can't take them as seriously as you did in the beginning, but you also, I think, have a kind of sympathy or, or pity for them by the end that you couldn't have started with. Yeah, because they look like such a beautiful assemblage of people who are all happy to be together. <laughs> yes. Mm -hmm. um, and ironically, they, they were gathered for the Fête de l'Humanité, which is a huge annual cultural event in Paris. It's run by the newspaper, L'Humanité, and... What you see behind them in the photograph is they're not really in a cafe. They're sort of in a tent at this festival, and there's publishers' booths behind them. But I also wondered, I mean, who, who knows if any of them read the story, but I think at least three of them were alive when it came out. Oh, um, wow. <laughs> and two of them still are, as far as I know. So you wonder what it would be like to read this story if you were one of the subjects. I mean, <laughs> I guess I guess it has a lot to do with whether or not how good you are at laughing at yourself to see someone sort of essentially fabricate a life for you, which is not particularly flattering, in some cases very unflattering. But if it's far enough away from the reality of your life, is it something that would just 
cause amusement in you or, you yeah. know, yeah. would you, would you, I, I mean, personally, I would think it would be pretty funny, but, um, yeah. but you know, that's me. Sterling, holy white mountain there in the dark garage. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, we don't know that the end of the story is actually the end of the story, or if this was not a final draft in, in Bologna's mind, but let's think about that very end. You've got uh, Henrique in the dark garage, and he's thinking about Guillotin with Carla de Vade. He discovers he has an erection, though he's completely not aroused. What does that final moment tell us? I was thinking about it as I was reading it. Because you had told me we don't know if it's complete. It was found on his computer, I think. And yeah. after he was dead. And um and I thought about it a lot and I you know, and I, I'm reading through it and I'm like, my feeling is that it is done. Mm-hmm. Um and not only because it actually is done, because nothing else can ever be done with it, but yeah. but also yeah. because there's a to me there is a sense of um, I, I'm I'm gonna misquote here, but I'm just gonna say you know like I, one of my one of my teachers at Iowa was Charlie D'Ambrosio, and he's he's a you know he's a he's a genius teacher of fiction, and and he used to say something along the lines of I'm gonna paraphrase it like short stories are complete but they're not finished it was mm-hmm. something like that, mm-hmm. but I mean you get what I'm saying like yeah. there's something about like to me when I read this I'm like aesthetically like the various elements of the story by the time we get to the end they feel resolved or complete to me yeah. um there's no resolution for what's happening inside the story at all yeah it just feels very much to me like this is all there was to say about this particular instance these people this situation i'll say this it feels aesthetically whole to me yeah um but very much internally like unfinished mm-hmm. in the in the in the right way Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, not neatly wrapped up. Yeah. There's something in that last sentence where I suppose what I feel is we're being told that despite all this, you know, what you refer to as the erotic undertones of the story, despite all their cleverness or perversions or desires, these people are so caught up in themselves or their their world that they can't actually bodily feel the arousal of it. Yeah. Something like that. He's standing in this completely dark garage and there's something, there seems to be something very terrible and very dark around him. There's something about the end of that story that is saying something about the smallness of of these affairs and these love yeah. triangles and these yeah. the smallness of that against the backdrop of this you know this tremendous darkness yeah yeah and i guess for us reading it now you know with bolaño gone and most of the people in that photograph gone you know the darkness falls over it mm. it's so hard to separate his work from his death especially 2666, right? But then all of this posthumous work. and But it's also that in some ways, some of these were written when he knew that he was not going to make it, you know? Yeah. Or he didn't know if he was going to make it, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think that actually is where some of that, that sense of dread or impending doom comes from and why it's why in some ways it seems 
you know, whatever it is he's talking about seems to be of the darkness, but not as large as the darkness. My feeling has always been that that's why, because he's writing all of this stuff in front of the backdrop of his own mortality and, and his own his sense of his own mortality is always larger and more significant than even the terror of uh, the terrible events that he is talking about sometimes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, on that sad note. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you so much, Sterling. Oh, thank you, Deborah. Roberto Bolaño, who died in 2003 at the age of 50, was a novelist, short story writer, and poet. More than two dozen of his books have been posthumously published in English, including the novels The Savage Detectives and 2666, which won the National Book Critics Circle Award, and the story collections Last Evenings on Earth and The Insufferable Gaucho. Sterling Holy White Mountain, who grew up on the Blackfeet Reservation in Montana, is a Jones lecturer at Stanford University. He's been publishing fiction in The New Yorker since 2021. You can download 200 previous episodes of The New Yorker Fiction Podcast or subscribe to the podcast for free in Apple Podcasts. On the Writer's Voice Podcast, you can hear short stories from the magazine read by their authors. You can find the Writer's Voice and other New Yorker podcasts on your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page or rate and review us in Apple Podcasts. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Michelle Moses. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts.